Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host, Dr. Tal Raviv and I are joined by Dr. Graham Barrett, a world-renowned ophthalmologist from Australia. Together, we talked to Dr. Barrett about his autonomous set of IOL formulas, the Barrett Suite, and his process in designing his own IOL, coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I am pumped to be back with my fellow co-host, the one and only Tal Raviv. Tal, how you doing? How's New York City? I'm doing good this week. I took the subway to work uh, this past week, and Compared to the past year and a half, it was packed. School's back, work's back. It's like a new era, and I hope it stays. That's good news, man. Yeah, I went to see the LSU uh, football team play in Tiger Stadium, and uh, it was great to be back in a full stadium and no masks. We had to show our, our, our you know vaccine cards and stuff like that to get in, but but it was a full stadium. I, my, I brought my, my uh, six-year-old with me. It's great to be uh, getting back to life uh, as we once knew it. Hopefully a little bit, kind of, sort of. Um, so, um, with this episode, um, you know, we thought, you know, what a, a cool, uh, a guest it would be to have Graham Barrett on, uh, all the way from Australia. Um, so I just thought that maybe you could introduce Dr. Barrett and, uh, and get us started. Well, thank Blake. You know, I, uh, we all know of Dr. Barrett, uh, he's world-renowned ophthalmologist. He's from Perth, Australia. Uh, he of course, is perhaps most well-known for his eponymous uh, set of IOL formulas, the Barrett Suite, which we'll get into. But he's won just about every award there is in international ophthalmology. And uh, I first met him uh, on, on the lecture circuit, but I was honored to have him as a visiting professor at the New York Eye and Ear a few years back and spent some time with him. And Graham, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Great to see you, Tal. I remember that visit very well. And nice to catch up again. Uh, we'd love to start out by asking you things maybe you don't get asked on, on the, you know, we're going to go backwards in time a little bit. Tell us a little bit about, I presume you grew up in, I know you went to medical training in Australia, you know, growing up in Australia, what it was like and, and how you became, you know, a doctor and an ophthalmologist. So actually my background's more varied, <clears throat> Tal, because I, I was born in the UK and then my parents migrated to um, South Africa. So I went to med school in Johannesburg. And then uh, when I graduated, you know, 40 years plus now, my wife and I immigrated to Australia. So I have a multifaceted background and accent, I guess, as well. That makes sense. So I was way off on everything. But at least, did you do residency in, uh, in Perth? Yes, I did all my ophthalmology um, okay. uh, in Australia. And, um, and I spent... Um, I did a um, fellowship in, in the U.S. with Jim McCulley in about uh, 87. And tell us a little bit about, for those of us listening, that, you know, maybe Australia is not something that we, we know much about. What, 
What's it been like under COVID? We know that Australia and New Zealand went for a zero COVID policy, which in the early days, we were looking at you guys having a normal life thinking this is great. On the other hand, maybe there was more shutdowns that are pretty severe. Tell us a little bit of what it's been like. Well, you describe it well, uh, but it's changed in the past few months because uh, it's a bit like the tale of two cities now because the East Coast is um, gone beyond that zero COVID. They, they couldn't um, manage to, to deal with a COVID outbreak with Delta, which started a few months ago. So they're having in Sydney, well, over a thousand cases a day, which for us is huge. Whereas on the West Coast, so we're a continent away, basically, we, we still have no COVID and we have no lockdown. Um, and we have no restrictions, masks or anything. Um, but during that time period, you may recall, I don't know, several months ago, we had one case and we locked down completely for one case. But a week later, we opened up and, and, and that's what it's been like. But I mean, we've had only probably 10 days, maybe a bit longer of total lockdown which sounds wonderful, and it is, but there's a sense of apprehension now because obviously you can't continue with COVID zero indefinitely because at some point in time it will arrive. And everyone's fairly um, pedestrian in their rush to vaccinate, unlike in the Sydney, Melbourne, where there is an outbreak, where the vaccine rate is now you know, hitting for 70, 80%, we're taking our time, um, partly because we bet on the wrong vaccine. So we thought AstraZeneca was going to be the answer and we produce it in large volumes in Australia. That was the strategy. And of course that was all done before some of the you know, very rare, but issues occurred with AstraZeneca. So people have been waiting for their Pfizer supplies, which are arriving now. So we'll catch up, but it's a very contentious issue because, you know, we look at the East and think, well, you didn't lock down properly and now you've put us in the situation and they're saying, well, when are you going to allow people from um, New South Wales to travel to WA? Because at the moment you can't get into WA and we can't get out. So it's, it's very restrictive and, uh, um, you, you haven't seen me at ASCRS or ESCRS. I simply can't get permission to do so. I can, but then I've got to be prepared not to come back for three months, something like that. It's, it's very restrictive. Yeah, I was going to ask. It's kind of like uh, here in the United States, we have parts of the states where uh, there's COVID outbreaks and parts of the states where there's barely nothing. So, so it's kind of similar to us. How has it been with you during lockdown, not having to travel and not having to you know, good all these meetings. It's kind of nice to be able to do some of the, the, the webinars we're doing now. I think we're kind of getting a little bit faded out on them, but, um, it, you know, my family has certainly enjoyed it to a large extent, but uh, being on an island, you know, way out where you guys are, is it kind of, are y'all itching to leave and get out and about? I, I know exactly what you're saying. In the first few months, it was novel and I quite enjoyed it. and was quite productive doing other things, but it wears off. And uh, I'm missing in particular um, uh, you know, the friendships and the people that I meet when I go to meetings like you guys. And yes, I'm ready to <laughs> recommence. <laughs> well, 
we, enjoying uh, the game. <laughs> well, we, we're waiting. We're ready to see you again. Um, switching gears um, back to uh, sort of your beginnings uh, before the Barrett Suite and, and um, you know, what you're so well known for, uh, at least in my generation of ophthalmologists in our first five or six years of practice, you were designing IOLs way back when. So I think in 1983, uh, is that when you designed your first OL? I was born in 1983. I'm not trying to make you feel old, but literally <laughs> I was born that year. Uh, meanwhile, you were actually designing IOLs. That's amazing. Can you kind of take me back to that time and where were you in your training and what made you think that you could design your own IOL? You know, I look back and now I think, uh, great question. I, I asked myself that question. What made me think I could? Uh, at the time, it seemed uh, obvious that there were limitations and I was uh, still a resident in ophthalmology. So I began the idea in my first year. I did a talk uh, to my peers on, on IOLs. Um, and the history of IOLs and became immediately fascinated by that whole topic and uh, acutely aware of some of the problems, particularly in the theodial touch. You know, these were days before viscoelastics and said, well, you know, if we have a material which damages endothelium, why don't we look at other materials? And that was the genesis for um, my interest in um, hydrophilic acrylic uh, implants, which are much more tolerant. And I you know, found a contact lens manufacturer in Perth. There's only one, of course. And he uh, didn't send me away. And I used to spend oh, uh, two afternoons a week when I was supposed to be studying ophthalmology in the lab, designing, working out the process, and uh, published the paper. And then as I was ending my training, we got a call from a company, um, well, for more than one company, but Alcon, and you know, it just escalated. I, I don't talk about it much because it's such an out-of-the-box experience. Um, it's almost like a fairy tale. And in fact, the interest of mine in formulae um, was a consequence of that lens design. So the lens was uh, a different refractive index. It was uh, a convex, uh, asymmetric, um, biconvex optic. Haptics didn't look like anything else. And when I began to implant this lens, and you're right, it was 83, and it was actually before the star lens, I had no idea what lens power this was, because it looked like nothing else on the planet. And so it was by necessity, then I said, well, okay, I need a formula where I can put these parameters in. I could make the radio of curvature, the refractive index. And that means you, you're delving into, um, you know, paraxial ray tracing or um, thick lens formulae. And that interest, you know, grew, but it was always peripheral. I was found it much more exciting on lens design, FACO became a huge interest, FACO dynamics, FACO needles, complex cataract surgery, and the formulae was just burning in the background. It, it wasn't quite macho enough for me. I you know, didn't really talk about it, but I was using it obviously and refining it. And uh, when I had a fellow several years ago, um, she asked me, well, 
you're okay, but what about the rest of us? And that made me do something else, which in retrospect, I think really um, was, was quite different in that rather than trying to talk to the various biometry companies, or I said, well, I'll just publish this online and make it freely available. And I had a role as, for many years, as president of APACRS, and I thought, well, this would be great. So as a, as a society, we're offering something. And so first I added the standard formula, then the true K formula, and the various others. Now, it sounds like I was a marketing genius, but I wasn't. I, I just thought, yeah, let me make this available. I really had no interest in making any money from it. Uh, and, and now I, I look and, and see that models become quite widely used. But that's in a very snapshot the story of formula. That is incredible. You know, I remember hearing about the Barrett formula early on, but it was it was not on any of our printouts. The first generation biometer didn't have it. And I remember when I first heard about it, I would occasionally go on and log on to the APACRS.org and I, I would punch in the numbers. This is going a decade ago or more. And I, you know, because I read that this was starting to start, you know, the published studies found that it was good. Uh, but, you know, was it called the Barrett initially? And then you... Uh, then you Barrett Universal, and then you made it the Barrett Universal 2. Tell us about the nomenclature of all that. And I feel like overnight you became a sensation. So it became the formula. I don't know, just maybe five, six, seven years ago, it became the number one, that along with maybe, you know, some others we'll talk about. But tell us about that transformation. Well, at the tender age of about 28 or so when this was happening, I was too modest to say, I'm going to call this the Barrett formula. So I decided I must have something to call it. So I called it the universal formula. Uh, and the idea of universal back in, you know, this is the eighties. Um, I wanted to make a formula that was accurate throughout the axial range uh, length. So maintain its accuracy from short, medium and long. <clears throat> and that's where the universal came from. And also the fact that, as I said, this was uh, Gaussian optics, so you could put any lens in that formula, you just needed the refractive index and the radii. And that's how I used it initially. And then I realized, my gosh, people don't know these parameters. So I uh, then just assume a biconvex optic, but it's within the formula. It's got all the inputs that you would want to put any lens in uh, without knowing necessarily what the constant was. You could do that. that that's within it. And then, of course, um, um, you know, I published this back in late 80s, early 90s. And then, you know, it evolved and it got refined and it got improved. And that's when I added two on to differentiate it perhaps from the early form there. So it became uh, Barrett Universal 2. And now the Universal tends to uh, not necessarily be included. Um, but it's, it's, it's a long road, but it was not intended to be my focus, but it's become probably the most important thing I've done in many respects, because everyone's forgotten, you know, the FACO needles, and the lenses, and all those other things to help. 
Oh, we may be coming back to the future. We'll talk about a lens you may be involved with, but uh, just to finish up the formulas a little bit, uh, you know, there's the Barrett torque calculator. And, you know, besides getting the sphere uh, accurately, getting that torque was a big problem for us for years. You know, Doug Koch helped remind us about posterior corneal astigmatism, but you actually have a formula that figured it out pretty darn well. And correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe it's not in 2021, going into 2022, is that formula still beat out most objective measurements by our topographer, tomographers to this day? Or are we getting to the point where we actually measure it now? Look, it still is, I think, um, as accurate. In fact, I'm always looking for, for ways to improve it. And one of the ways to improve it, improve it is to add, add a measured component to it. So you measure the posterior cornea, but and I don't want to get into too much detail, but measuring the posterior cornea isn't sufficient. If you base a formula on the measured posterior cornea, you'll only get a modest improvement in your outcomes. So there's, there's more to a toric calculation than that. And you have to take account of that, but you can take that measured posterior cornea and utilize it within the toric calculator if your toric calculator is uh, flexible enough. And there, there are subgroups where using um, the Barrett toric calculator with the measured posterior cornea input will actually give you better outcomes than just the pure prediction mode, such as post-refractive and unusual corneas uh, such as keratoconus. But for the average eye, uh, amazingly, the predicted uh, method, so it, it, it utilizes a posterior cornea, but it predicts the posterior cornea. But it also accounts for things like tilt and other things which contribute to unexplained astigmatism. Uh, that's still, in my hands anyway, superior than directly measuring. But when you, when you use, say, the Barrett TK, it's very confusing because the Barrett TK on the Zeiss. Uh, it's just not, it's not just the Barrett formula with TK, it's not. It's a convenient name for the Barrett toric calculator with the input measured cornea. It doesn't use the TK value, so it can be a bit confusing. What's that, what's that like working with all those different companies to, to, to have the suite on it, right? So I'm guessing there's some type of business relationship where, you know, in order to have the Barrett suite, you know, they have to form a relationship with your company and it's, it's, and all these companies want that on their biometers. They want it in their aura. Um, you know, is what's, what was that process like, um, you know, licensing, you know, what you created for all these different ways that we can, you know, help, you know, give patients better vision. Um, I, I had practice. So over the years with uh, lenses and FACO technology and so on, I, I had uh, lots of experience of working with companies, knocking on their door and saying, please, will you look at this? Scribbling on napkins. And th this was the greatest fun because they were knocking on my door and saying, <laughs> can we do it? But um, and, you, and you would say yes for a modest fee. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's complicated enough that you really can't do it without me. So I, you know, haven't, so I've painted the things over, over, over the years, but not, not in this case. And uh, yes, so <clears throat> finally, after many years, 
a remarkably easy process. And, um, but of course, what, what happens is you, you, you know, you gain relationships over the years. So you, you have an entrance um, to companies and to people, which, you know, you, you take for granted, but it happens over many years. You know, Graham, you've, I know the last few years you added, uh, obviously, the TK, which is on the Zeiss, you know, to get a little better results. And you, as you mentioned, for postmyopic LASIK, for keratoconus, maybe not the average case yet. You've done your integrated K. We take multiple K measurements because that was a source of error. And I think you've gotten tighter results with that. What's, what's on the horizon? Do you have the next, are you working on the next thing? Can you, can you share anything with us? I've done it. Um, been sitting on it for um, several months. And that's just looking, you know, because the issues are a formula, post-refractive, keratoconus, toric uh, lens exchange, and, you know, working on solutions to all those things. So now I'm going back to the beginning and say, well, okay, um, it was an open field a decade ago when everyone was using essentially um, you know, standard formulae. And, uh, and, and now the field's getting quite crowded. There's many contenders. It's bewildering, the number. Uh, the reality is that we're all hitting a ceiling to some extent, but there's still a distinction between a modern formula and a traditional formula. So what I'd like now to do is uh, keep pushing that boundary. So I have a, <clears throat> I'm not going to call it BU3. It's just going to be BU2 version three <laughs> and, and, um, and there's many ways um, that you can push that boundary. And uh, one is just more data. So that will be the first look. The other, the other is including other parameters such as gender. Um, the other thing is, well, how can you more um, reliably include the features of the lens you're using? not just the constant, a little bit more sophisticated than that, because they have other features than a constant. They have asphericity, the different companies control the optic thickness in a variety of ways and uh, looking at that in more detail. So that's my next mission. It's more complicated now because I could change the formula as I wanted to over the years. And I just used to change it online, not even mention it and just refine it. But if you have the formula being used by many people um, and companies on their barometers, the consequences is greater. So the validation that you require to make sure this is going to offer you an advantage is, is more difficult. And of course, you know, because things are so good now, you put a lot of work into making it better and you look and you look at, you know, a thousand hours and say, mm, yes, it is a bit better, but it's so tiny. Do you want to be disruptive? And, you know, that's the process I'm going through now. You mentioned, um, you know, all the, the crowded landscape now compared to what there was. The Mount Rushmore of biometry, I feel like you have the Barrett and Hill and Holiday. Do you guys ever, would y'all ever like get together in the past and like get a beer and just like talk formulae or do you guys, are y'all friendly or? Do you talk about what you're, you're creating? Because so many people look to you guys, you know, for this stuff. I mean, we are, we are all friendly. It's, it's, it's uh, a very nice uh, group of peers. 
and you know we can enjoy talking to each other because we bore everybody else to death with talking about some of the nuances. Uh, but if you if you you ask me, well, why do I think it I was successful? One of the ingredients of, of that is the total isolation of Perth. We are the most isolated capital city in the world. So I grew up and, and I say, well, you know, how did you, what made you think you could make a lens out of a new material or various other things? Well, I, I, I live in a world in, in an intellectual sense, in ophthalmology on my own, even isolated from the East Coast. So uh, I don't have the um, privilege and advantage of hearing Jack Holiday, you know, uh, every second month presenting his wonderful insights. So the, what happens, you're, you're thinking on your own and uh, your, your, your intellectual sphere is, is untouched in some respects. So it makes you think differently. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever, did you ever think about, um, you know, one of the, the sort of holy grails of nailing your, your result, you know, you can have a great biometry and you know, the K's and you know, the axial length and it's all right on the money, but ELP lens position is always kind of that factor at the end. Have you thought about technologies that can sort of make that more standardized so that we can get more LASIK-like outcomes for, with, 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 you know, lens-based surgery, whether it be Femto, I know a lot of people, you know, believe Femto can help with ELP or different lens designs or other things to kind of, to, to, to kind of stabilize that last sort of fudge factor um, that, that we can't quite account for. Look, we're trying hard. Every new parameter that you introduced, such as measuring the posture cornea, um, can potentially help. There may be other parameters that you can measure, such as the lens parameters itself, the thickness and so on, more precisely, even curvature. Um, but if you look at the benefit of these additional parameters, the improvement percentage-wise becomes less and less and less. But I think that's one direction. The other direction is um, lens design and more precisely entering those parameters in the formulae, either directly or indirectly. And um, it's not just a matter of saying, well, let's make a lens where the ELP stays fixed, uh, regardless of the power, and I've thought about that. But you don't need to do that. You just need to know how that optic changes as the power range changes. Um, Femto potentially looked interesting, didn't turn out to be that way. Um, one of the challenges we have that we're measuring our success by refraction, which is incredibly noisy anyway. And, you know, it's a huge challenge to make your refraction precise and make it um, objective. And, uh, you know, if you have a patient and you're measuring down to a quarter diopter of cylinder, uh, I still refract occasionally. And so I, I have a, an acute sense of appreciation how difficult that is. You've got to look over the shoulder of your optometrist or technician and tell them their job is not to make you happy and give you wonderful results, but tell it as it is, as Bobby would say. I want to know the refraction. And if there's a quarter diopter cylinder, 
I want it documented. And uh, if you, you don't stop refracting at 6.6, six, you go down to 6.5 or 6.4, because until you get to that level, you haven't got the best refraction. But there's not many uh, sensors or... Um, I've worked with one guy for so many years and he knows me and so I have that uh, reliable input. And, and, and so how, how can we do better when sometimes our index of success is somewhat fuzzy? And, and that's a challenge too. As uh, I've heard you and Warren Hill, I mean, you know, you're basically, sometimes you're, the size of the room is what you're optimizing for in different different uh, clinics, things like that, because that makes a difference in the vision, the refraction. As you wrap it up, uh, you know, you started out making lenses and then you had to make a formula so the lens worked. And it seems like you're coming back to lenses. Tell us a little bit about your latest project. I think you're working with Rainer, is that right? And the newest category of lenses, is that right? It is, Tal. So look, I've never left lenses, um, you know, some of my dreams are about haptics and how to make them better. And I'm working with more than one company and trying to get that perfect haptic. Um, I then, oh, more than 10 years ago, um, began thinking about optics, although I have thought about it. So, so many of the things that um, you see, like the... Um, adjustable optic and so on. Of, of course, I've thought about, it. not just me, we all, we all think about it, but um, thinking about it's one thing, but taking it into practice is another journey. So the one thing I did take into practice was my thoughts on um, extended depth of focus. I've never been a fan of multifocals and I'm still not, and I don't use them. I did when they first came out, absolutely. I was one of the first to, to extend the testing on the 3M, but um, I've, I left that. And, and Monovision has substituted perfectly for me. Um, but I've always thought, well, yes, it is important to read and Monovision works for me, but how do you take that the next step? How do you enhance that? And that, led me to um, extended depth of focus, which is a common term now, but when I first presented the concept, it wasn't a common, common term, EDF. And the idea was, how can you add something without detracting too much? And of course, it depends how greedy you are. If you get greedy, you do pay a penalty. And uh, I wanted to say, well, can you get something almost for nothing, <clears throat> and that was extended depth of focus. But I wanted to use it with um, myopia, with monovision, because if you limit yourself to quality vision, then you're not going to read unaided. You'll get good intermediate, you get a little bit better reading. You have to add some myopia, at least in one eye. And... Um, Rather than that being kind of an afterthought, you bring out this wonderful lens and it doesn't work that well. So then the monovision creeps in. You've seen that with accommodative lenses. You're still seeing it with extended depth of focus. But I said, no, from the outset, I recognized this. And I said, well, what method of extended depth of focus best lends itself to 
monovision or myopia and it happens to be positive spherical aberration. Um, I actually worked with another company uh, for, for years on this, which was Hoyer, and then eventually uh, began a partnership with Rayner. And so they now have the Rayner EMV, Enhanced Monovision. Uh, you don't have to use it with monovision, of course. You can use it just targeting emetropia. But it's, it, it just lends itself very well extending depth of focus with positive spherical aberration lends itself very well to um, working synergistically with a level of myopia because there's many ways you can extend the depth of focus of course as we see diffractive optics phase uh, shift optics but this is the lens perhaps that you you're seeing um, and, and yes, it's, it's FDA approved, and I think there are beginning studies in the US. That's amazing. Um, that's really, we're really excited about getting access to that um, and using that in our patients who are desirous of, of uh, spectacle freedom. Um, Dr. Barrett, I want to thank you for joining us on Off the Grid. Um, it's been illuminating to listen to you. Someone who's been doing these amazing things literally my entire life um, and, and contributed so much. Uh, to giving us the best refractive outcomes from the lenses to the formula and everything in between. So, um, you know, Tal, it's fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you for joining us again. And uh, we hope that you'll come back. Oh, it'll be a pleasure. Enjoy talking about it. It's not often you can talk about things, you know, beyond the things which occupy us on the podium. So I've enjoyed it very much and appreciate the opportunity. Thank you to Dr. Barrett for joining us on this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.